negotiating employment arrangements. Um, we've put this webinar together. Um, we know this can be um, a tricky um, area um, with a lot of complexities around it. So we hope you find this valuable um, when you're looking at different work arrangements. I'm Mari Walters, if you don't know me, um, Executive Officer of SDA. And um, I'm really pleased to introduce Linda Norman from HR Plus, who's going to be presenting to you um, today. So before I introduce um, Linda, I'll facilitate the webinar today um, and also any questions that you may have um, as they arise. So please post them into the Q&A box um, and we can put those to Linda um, at the end of the webinar. I'll post those to Linda um, for you. Please do um, put your questions in writing um, so that if we do happen to run out of time at the end of the webinar, um, we'll be able to get Linda to answer those for us um, after the webinar. So a heads up, this webinar is being recorded. So um, it will be available on Moodle afterwards so that you can review um, the content again in, in more detail um, if you want to recap on anything that's there. So, um, so yeah, really pleased to have Linda um, with us today. Linda did a great webinar for us a couple of days ago around the employer side of things. Um, so Linda has a partner with HR Plus um, and has over 20 years experience in the human resources HR management side of things. So um, she's worked and consulted in a professional capacity across different sectors, different industries, um, including the sports industry, which is really key for us here because we know the sports space um, can operate a bit differently. So Linda's got a generalist background um, and consults on a wide range of issues, uh, which includes strategic HR management, conflict management, performance management, and also training and development. So um, a really warm welcome, Linda, and I'm going to hand over to you and um, looking forward to hearing what, um, what lies ahead. Thank you very much, Mari. Um, this is uh, an interesting webinar. We enjoy putting these sorts of webinars together because sporting is so intriguing and interesting in terms of there's so many different working um, arrangements in the sporting sector, which makes it particularly interesting, um, especially from our perspective. So let's let's look at negotiating employment arrangements. Let's get straight into the webinar. We're going to talk today about the types of working arrangements, uh, negotiating uh, fair remuneration and employment terms. How can you make sure you're being paid, paid, uh, paid fairly for the work that you're doing? And we're going to take a look at employment contracts, the types of employment contracts that we recommend you put in place when you start a working relationship with an organisation. So starting off types of working arrangements, there are so many different types of working arrangements. For example, you could be a permanent ongoing staff member when you sign a contract and it's for, it's an indefinite contract essentially, even though employment is never indefinite. Um, that's a permanent ongoing contract. You can be uh, employed in a a uh, full-time basis, which is usually 38 hours a week, or a part-time basis, which is something less than 38 hours a week, but generally regular work on an ongoing basis. You can also be per employed under a fixed term arrangement. So it's not ongoing. It might just be employed from 
a period of time to another period of time. And that's not uncommon for the sporting sector, particularly in peak bodies. Um, and also clubs, particularly when if they're funding, if they're getting funding for a short period of time for a particular need, then they'll go out looking for a, a contract work or we call it fixed term employment. You get a contract saying your, your role starts at a certain time, finishes at a certain time. And then there's casual work, which is as we need you, when we need you, basically. It's paid with a loading, usually 25%, and the casual, uh, there's an agreement between the parties about when they actually work. So casuals can also be working, and fixed term employees can also be working on a full-time basis, 38 hours a week, or a lesser number of hours per week, or in the case of a casual, it can be very um, ad hoc. Then we also have self-employed contractors. These are people who generally have their own business. They control their costs. They put a price on their work. And we'll talk about self-employed contractors and those sorts of arrangements in more detail in very shortly. Then we've got volunteers and work experience uh, arrangements which are generally unpaid, intern arrangements, that kind of thing. And we'll talk a bit more about what that looks like and our understanding of the legalities of these different types of working arrangements. And I think you need to be very clear on that when you're negotiating something, uh, some work for an organisation or a, a person, someone you're working for, it could be an individual. So full-time is generally 38 hours a week plus reasonable additional hours. And that's a very important term, reasonable additional hours. If you find you're doing a lot of work beyond 38 hours, you might find this in a peak body <laughs> or a government organisation if you're working full-time, the hours can be long. And there are laws around how many extra hours you can do and how you're remunerated for those hours. Part-time work is less than 30 hours, eight hours a week. Generally, a part-time person is reasonably predictable working hours. And under most awards, including the award that governs probably many of SDA members, um, the award says with a part-time worker, you need to be, uh, the contract needs to, or the agreement needs to um, indicate the pattern of work and the um, number of hours you work each day, which days of the week, essentially, and your start and finish times. I know that's really problematic for a number of organisations, but this is what is required under awards. Um, does require some kind of rigidity when it comes to part-time workers, which, and the reason for that is because hours worked in addition to core part-time hours are overtime. So, and employer needs to be very clear, and you need to be very clear about how many hours you're engaged for, and then at what point overtime triggers. And it's usually if you're engaged for 20 hours a week, to work 20 hours a week as a part-time employee, I'm talking ongoing employment or a fixed-term employment here, then typically any hour that you do after that 20 hours is overtime. 
Now, some organisations pay overtime as time in lieu. You find that a lot in the sporting environment because budgets aren't high uh, to be paying, you know, time and a half, double time penalties, uh, et cetera. So it's often a time in lieu arrangement so that if you work more hours in, a, in your month or your week, depending on your roster cycle, then you bank those hours, those hours are recorded. And then at some point down the track, when you've got a quiet time, you take those banked hours. That's how time in lieu works. And it is very common in the sporting sector. Oh, the other thing I should say is some employees, specifically professional employees, can often be paid a loaded rate. And sometimes, and it's usually stated in the contract that you have with an organisation, and a loaded rate can be offset against things like overtime provisions or allowances under awards. We'll talk about this in a minute. A casual, there's been a lot of debate about what a casual is. And essentially it's a person who works um, not to a fixed roster, generally speaking. Uh, casuals can accept work or reject work quite lawfully, say, no, I can't work today or I can't work next week. And an employer doesn't have to give casuals work um, either if they choose not to. After about months, there's a casual, if you've still got casuals working or if you're a casual that's still working, your employer um, may invite you to convert to permanent employment. And there are laws around that. You can find out more information about that under the Fair Work uh, Ombudsman website or the award that might apply to your employment. In this case, the um, Health Professionals and Support Services Award is the one that would govern employment in the sector, the primary award anyway. And I know that some of you are covered by other awards. If you're working for government organisation, they've got their whole, a government organisation, they have different, different um, employment laws applicable to them. So you might be under a different system there. Okay, let's look at independent contractors. This is an important type of work, particularly in a sector um, with professionals, health professionals like you are. So what characterises an independent contractor? Usually you have a sign and we would recommend if you do nothing else, when you're undertaking work as a contractor under your own business, ABN, that you have a contractor agreement that very specifically says you're a contractor and, and explains what, what you will cover as a contractor and what your employer uh, is liable for. So a contractor has an agreement that looks like a contractor agreement. They're quite different to the normal agreement that you might have with an employer. And we later in this webinar, we'll talk about what those agreements might look like. A contractor typically visibly promotes their own business and services and develops goodwill through their work for their name, their brand or reputation. A contractor generally pays their own taxes, insurances and business expenses. And I'm talking insurance, we're talking public uh, liability, professional indemnity, um, superannuation as well. A contractor generally provides their own tools and equipment and 
does not normally work under supervision. They're professionals. You expect when you're hiring a contractor to come in, they will know what to do and will be able to go and do it uh, without being routinely supervised. Contractors don't uh, usually not provide with leave and other benefits because that's reflected in their higher rate. They work under an ABM typically and have their own systems for invoicing and payments, debt collection and budgeting. A contractor is likely to provide services to a number of different purchases, and that is one thing that's important too when you're looking at contract arrangements. Are you working for different people as a contractor? Um, a contractor can maybe able to employ or subcontract individuals to perform the work. They use their own standard rates and terms and conditions of trade, and they have their own business name or contract through an incorporated entity in some cases. So these are characteristics of contractors. There's quite a few more characteristics. And when these cases have been tested in courts, the courts have looked at on balance. Few contractors meet all those tests, but they might meet the majority, in which case they're more likely to be a contractor than an employee. Um, so just to give an example of why this is so important, one of our clients, not in the sporting sector, had a contractor, it's actually an engineering company, had a number of contractors on their staff and the contractors had worked for several years in some cases. And after about eight years, one of their contractors said, you know, where's all my long service leave and where's my leave benefits? And the employer said, well, you're a contractor and we've got a, a signed agreement that was eight years ago. But <laughs> the problem is that the agreement had morphed into something more than that. By that time, after eight years, this, this person had worked solely for this organisation and felt that they were an employee now and was taking direction, moving on to different projects, et cetera. Anyway, um, so that, that the, that's the risk for an employer. For an employee, it's what I recommend you do. If you're in a situation where you've got a contract in place for a long period of time, make sure you review it and speak to your employer about it. And it might be that you switch from a, a contractor arrangement to an employee arrangement, because that's more suitable for both parties going forward and may reflect the law a little bit more closely. <laughs> okay, volunteer is another thing that's very common in the sporting sector. And it's good to know, you need to know when you're a volunteer and when you're not. So, Simply stating that a relationship is voluntary isn't efficient. The arrangement must meet specific legal tests to be considered a genuine voluntary relationship. And definitions of volunteer may vary also within uh, between jurisdictions. So let's look at an example. And, and volunteers are rife in the sporting sector. Um, gee, clubs are full of volunteers. Peak bodies are full of volunteers. You run an event, there's volunteers everywhere. So who's a volunteer? So in a voluntary speaking, the parties don't intend to create an employment-based relationship. You're going into that relationship wanting to be a volunteer. Clearly, you've made a decision to volunteer your time. Um, typically, you're not obliged to do that. Typically, volunteers are not obliged to offer services to an organisation. There's no perceived coercion to perform duties. You are not being coerced in a voluntary situation. 
you're willingly giving your time to, to assist in an organisation. And it's often uh, the last point basically means that you're not expecting any monetary payments or special benefits because you're volunteering. Again, like the test for a contractor, the test for volunteers, a very long list, and the cases that have gone to court. And there was a case in soccer a number of years ago. They don't go to court very often when it comes to sporting organisations, which I find quite surprising because of the number of volunteers in the sporting sector. But there was a case where in soccer where um, about 70 years ago, um, coach of a NPL level team was coaching a team for a club and the coach at the end of their six-month stint and they were paid a stipend it was a volunteer allowance to cover their expenses and at the end of that period the coach said I'm an employee I should be paid benefits basically and that was run through the courts and it was actually it could have that case could have gone either way but because there was a voluntary volunteer agreement a written agreement in place that clearly indicated the nature of the relationship the agreement it was seen to be voluntary so the, again that documentation is really important if you do work as a volunteer and and it's a situation you're not just jumping into a, a an event or something like that you're working in, in, in a role that could be paid. And I would imagine in the sports nutrition sector, a lot of the volunteering work you might be asked to be doing is something that, that may be needed and could be paid by the club. So uh, a, a voluntary arrangement or agreement, piece of paper uh, indicates it's voluntary and that there's no expectation by other party is a really good thing to have if you can encourage that. Um, in a voluntary arrangement, the arrangement usually benefits the individual more than the organisation. So we were talking, uh, weren't we, Mari, earlier about internships, for example. Who benefits with an internship? Well, sometimes it's, it is the individual. Um, and usually the internship, for example, is a situation where an individual will approach an organisation and say, I, need, I want to get some experience, I want to get some exposure. And under a training organisation or university, there's no problem at all with these sorts of intern arrangements because they're all, they've all been well considered um, and insurances have been uh, paid, uh, covered, the intern is paid in case there's an accident, injury, that kind of thing, and, and they're lawful. That's how training organisations and universities can do these things. But outside that internships can be problematic, particularly if the employer needs the work done. So you're actually doing work that is profitable or needed a service that needs to be provided by the employer. So uh, yes, my, my, my uh, view on this is just, if, if you go into an internship or a voluntary role, or you've been asked to consider doing some work as a volunteer, just think carefully about, is that your choice? Is it something that's benefiting you? Because if it is, then you could consider it, certainly for a short period of time. Voluntary arrangements are sometimes short-term 
um, the best if they're short term. If they go on for a while, then 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 you're questioning it. And we look, we've had a few clubs that we've worked with, um, and, and one comes to mind in Queensland again, where uh, a coach was taken on as a volunteer, quite legitimate in the first instance. And the person worked as a volunteer, actually didn't really work, started observing classes, supernumerary situation. That person wasn't needed. The club didn't have the budget or the need for an extra staff member. Someone came along and said, I'd like to learn more. I want to be a coach. Can I volunteer? Club said, yes, very, very common. Um, and then, but after... Over a period of time, this volunteer started to take their own class, literally became the coach of that squad. So that's when it, it should have been paid. You know, at that point, there should have been a contract drawn up for paid work because that volunteer didn't need that training anymore. They were capable enough of running the class and the club should have paid them for it. So it was about six months later volunteer said I'd be paid for that work and they should have been that was settled out of court and there's been other situations that are we've known about that have been settled out of court like that they don't always go to the courts because of the expense of it so if you're in a voluntary relation relationship make sure it's it's benefiting you you've initiated it ideally it's benefiting you you're uh, deriving uh, most of the benefit from it for a supernumerary, it's a supernumerary situation. The club doesn't have to, or the organisation doesn't have to resource it. You're not doing paid work. It's for your, say, professional development is quite common. Um, but then if it becomes more than that, then it, it's probably time to renegotiate that. And we would encourage you to do so. Okay, there's more slides here. I'm just going to leave them up very briefly the difference between a volunteer and employee. Again, it's a long list when the courts have looked at this uh, in different industries that they've considered all kinds of different things. So I'll just leave them in here for you to go back to and look at if, if you've got questions around this. Okay, how do I negotiate fair remuneration and employment terms? Because this is important, it's important. You need to establish what you're worth for a start, okay? As an employee, understand your minimum employment entitlements and we'll go through briefly what they are. Let's have a look. So when you're negotiating a rate of pay or remuneration for yourself, you start with what's lawful, what the law requires. So... Essentially, the health professionals and support services award, I think that's the title, it, it indicates what the minimum rate is for, for health professionals like sports, um, nutritionists like yourselves. And it's, it says various, there's four levels under that award, under uh, Appendix A, I think it is. And it steps through with more detail than I've got here the differences between level one, level two, level three, and level four. And it establishes a minimum pay rate. That's for a full-time or part-time person working in ongoing employment in a permanent role, essentially, for an organisation. And you can see a new graduate 
starts at $24. There are tiers within each level uh, based on the number of hours worked or the number of years worked at that level. Um, it, it, it varies. Entry level goes up to $31.43 per hour at the moment. Level two, you can see it's a little bit higher than that. Level three, a much more experienced. Oops, sorry, done something with my mouse. Level three becomes more specialized. A practitioner is much more specialized. And level four is the highest level of um, professional specialization. Um, it seems that this award covers uh, management levels. If you move into general management and you're no longer in a role that requires a technical specialization as a sports um, nutritionist, then you might not be covered by this award. But you can see the pay rate. The basic hourly rate goes up to $57.21. You wouldn't be negotiating anything less than these rates in that situation of permanent employment because it's unlawful. So that's the starting point, essentially. It's a flaw. It's, these rates, rates are low because the assumption is that, well, we'll talk about this, that, that there'll be potentially um, market rates and other factors reflect somebody's pay. This just sets the basic hourly rate, the legislated hourly rate. So the increments, as I mentioned, um, there are pay points increments under this award based on annual service or 1,801824 hours <laughs> um, in the case of part-time uh, employees. And the rates also change, uh, particularly at level one, depending on how, how long your uh, formal education has been, whether you've got a three-year degree or whether you've got a PhD, you, you start at a different level. And there are two to five pay points each level. As I say, you move through them each year if you're a full-time staff member. And these rates are updated around July every year. Under this award, and it's a really good idea, if you're covered by this award, then it's, or whatever um, employment laws you're covered by, it's a good idea to know what your entitlements are because they're the minimum entitlements, they set the floor. So as I mentioned before, a 38 hour week averaged over four weeks is the, the hours for a maximum hours, maximum core hours for a full-time employee. Um, under the award, the span of hours is you can work between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., Monday to Friday. After that, there's a loading on your rate. So if you're working after hours for a sporting club, which I'm sure many of you do, <laughs> that should be paid at a higher rate. Um, generally, the overtime rate kicks in after the span. You're entitled to a meal break, um, an unpaid break of half to one hour, uh, after five hours of work and a paid 20-minute tea, tea break as well under this award. So under this award and with other awards that you might be covered under, there's also things like allowances. If you're working uh, at your boss's level, there's a high duties allowance, there's a heat allowance for hot working conditions under this award. If you're interpreting uh, some of you might do that. 
because you can, there's an allowance for that, that you could pay, be paid extra for it. For traveling in your job, but not to and from work, but if you're at work and you're traveling <clears throat> with your work to different locations, then that's generally paid by a, a per kilometre allowance. If you're working overtime and you have to have a meal, you get a meal allowance. Um, and if you have to wear a uniform, there's an allowance for that as well. In addition, uh, so over, overtime is clearly paid extra uh, or, or, to, or time in lieu of overtime, if that's the arrangement that you have uh, with your employer. There are penalties for on-call, being on-call, being recalled to work, for working weekends and under the award there's also um, provisions for accumulating leave, cashing out leave, annual leave loading, public holiday substitution and how wages are paid. So good idea to, to log on to the award and have a look through it just to see what the minimum entitlements are for you. Okay, there's the National Employment Standards under the Fair Work Act, which also governs your employment. 38 hour week, a request for flexible working arrangements is legislated, and that's usually in the situation because you've got young children at school. Um, it could be because you're a carer, could be because of a domestic violence situation. There is um, the right to request a flexible working ar arrangement for people in that situation. Under the Fair Work Act and the NES uh, talks about the leave that you're entitled to, personal leave, bereavement leave, there's a whole range of leave, including parental leave as well. There's lots of other re uh, legislation relevant to your employment, federal, uh, the Fair Work Act we've talked about and modern awards, the Independent Contractors Act. So there are laws governing independent contractor arrangements. There's superannuation laws. There's the Privacy Act. And each state ha <clears throat> has different requirements about health and safety, anti-discrimination, public holidays, long service leave and working with children as well. Okay. But how do you establish what you're worth? Okay, we've, we've said you first look at the minimum floor. You know what the law says you can't go below. So you don't want to negotiate any further than that because you're in breach of the law. So as an employee, understand your minimum employment entitlements, et cetera. Under modern awards, we spoke about that. Now, the next one is market rates. So while awards might stipulate the minimum floor, the minimum hourly rate, it's more likely that market rates may be relevant to your employment. So how do you find out what the market rates are for your job? Let's have a look. Well, SDA did a survey in March last year, about a year ago, and actually asked the consulting fees that members are charging. And we can see here, if we look here, this concerns me a bit, zero dollars, six percent of members, and I'm presuming that's voluntary work, legitimate voluntary work um, that you're doing for your personal benefit, professional development or whatever reasons uh, you want to get involved in something. So you're doing legitimate voluntary work. Then the next 10 percent they're working, said they're working for 10 to 30 dollars an hour. Well, that's 
less than the minimum rate. And I can only assume that that, that, that result might be because those members of, might not be paid enough <laughs> or might be doing voluntary work but paid an honorarium or something like that, in which case I've got big question marks against that kind of arrangement. I think you need to really look at that. Um, we've got 40% of members who are paid what looks like award rates there between 31 to 60 and 61 to 100 and some more than that. They're looking like contractor rates or manager rates, market rates in this section here too. So this is an interesting little table. And then there's a daily fee, which I presume is just a subset of eight hours of that makes this. I'm presuming that's the same, a similar kind of figure, but that's how you need to look at it. What is, what am I worth? What does, what's the minimum legislated weight, a rate? And then what am I going to add on top, if anything at all? And some of you should be adding um, pay on top of that absolutely and we'll talk about that why why so in terms of finding what the market rate is you might be adding um, a margin on top of that base rate when you're negotiating with your employer because the market rate pays more uh, jobs when jobs are scarce or skills are scarce often the market pays more for those skills and you're in a professional role how do you know what your peers what the market rates are well get on the internet. SDA advertise a lot of roles. In fact, they seem to be the major, is that right, Murray? Are you the major job board for sports nutritionists? Um, yeah, for sports dietitians. Yeah. Um, we, because a lot of the roles require, if not all of the roles require an accredited sports dietitian, SDA being the body that provides that credential, um, the jobs will get funneled through SDA for recruitment. So, right. Um, so, yeah, keep an eye on that. Is that pushed to your members, those jobs, or they go on the website when they're looking for something? Yes. Yeah. So, they get put on our website and on our SDA Connect community platform. Um, and the website will do an email push out to members as well. Okay. Right. So, that's a great starting place to find out what's going on, who's employing. And sometimes the uh, rate of pay is posted there. Government organisations typically do post their rate of pay. Private organisations often don't. They, they want to see who's coming in the door and what the market rate is. So have a look there. There are other job boards that might occasionally post uh, roles as well. Seek, Indeed, Jura are some of those. And what I recommend you do is to also look at the websites of organisations that you're looking at. Uh, for work opportunities because they often post roles that are available directly up on their websites and uh, sometimes with the salary data uh, terms and conditions of employment as well and then maybe keep a diary and a file note of the jobs that you're seeing advertised and talk to your colleagues of course because because they can tell you as well um, what the going rate rates are for the market rates for the work that you're looking at doing So as a contractor, though, it's slightly different. What we recommend you do as a contractor is add 50% over on top of that award rate. And this is why. Because as a contractor running your own business, you're responsible for tax, super, all of the rest of it. A casual 
usually gets 25% on that base rate to cover their leave. As a contractor, you should be remunerated for that too. So if you take the base rate plus 25% to cover your leave, because that's what casuals get, a contract is very similar, and then you add another 25% to cover super, it's 10% there already. And all your business expenses, like your workers' compensation, um, public liability, uh, contractors have to have all these sorts of insurances. So around a 50% loading, and your equipment, of course, 50% loading is not unreasonable on top of the base rate. And under the Independent Contractors Act, which says the contract terms must be fair, basically, you can argue that it is fair. Um, anything less than that, you, you're underpaying yourself. Either you're compromising on a minimum hourly rate, you're forgetting that you need leave, you need the, the, the same entitlements to, to leave, to a break, to be ill and recover and to be uh, remunerated through that, through the work that you're doing. And you also need to be paid for the equipment and the business setup costs that you have. Now, some people load a lot more than 50% on, and that's quite okay. In that case, business expenses are higher. You might be running a big, bigger organisation. It might be tiered in terms of the uh, rates that you're charging. Your um, The market rates might be much higher. So it's sort of, I think, a 50% loading on the award rate for a contractor is the starting point, essentially. Other than that, you want why you're using a contract rate um whether that really is fair for you okay you've got rent to yeah equipment insurances i think i've covered all that so how do you negotiate it i'm gonna just i don't know why my computer's done Linda, did you want to just um sorry to interrupt do you want to just pop your camera off and just see if that might help with the internet load Okay, sorry, we just paused because there was a connection problem. I'll just go back a step. So in order to negotiate fair remuneration, the first step is to develop a shared understanding with your employer. Keep asking questions about what their needs are until you completely understand. You're on the same page with them. Um, guide, you probably need to guide and educate your employer or your client who may not be familiar with your industry and the work that you do and explain how sports nutrition practitioners may differ and what skill sets you can offer. Clearly and confidently articulate the scope of your skill set and your terms of engagements. Ideally, early on in your discussions, you don't want to get too far into an Okay, sorry, we just paused because there was a connection problem. I'll just go back a step. So in order to negotiate fair remuneration, the first step is to develop a shared understanding with your employer. Keep asking questions about what their needs are until you completely understand. You're on the same page with them. Um, guide, you probably need to guide and educate your employer or your client who may not be familiar with your industry and the work that you do and explain how sports nutrition practitioners may differ and what skill sets you can offer. Clearly and confidently articulate the scope of your skill set and your terms of engagements. Ideally, early on in your discussions, you don't want to get too far into an employment relationship and then all of a sudden find out they're not paying or the pay rate's poor or 
you're on a different page to them. They're expecting you to do something that's outside your skill set, the scope of your skill set. Um, develop a written agreement of shared understanding and engagement terms. And that's a contractor agreement or an employment agreement with a position description or an outline of the, the deliverables that you're going to um, undertake and the scope of the work that you'll be doing. Consider non-monetary benefits um, as well. So it's, it's not always about salary. Sometimes people take a lower salary, but they get other benefits, which, which makes their work worthwhile. So it could be flexible hours, working from home, uh, negotiating additional leave, uh, professional de uh, development opportunities or offsetting fees or covering fees for that, um, reimbursement of, uh, salary packaging, that kind of thing. Now, hang on a minute. Okay, uh, so you develop a written agreement of shared understanding. Consider non-monetary benefits, which can often be a draw card or a reason why people might work for less. I'm not suggesting, and I never suggest working for less than the minimum award rate. So please, um, I think that that's suitable in any situation. Um, it's awful, basically. But you might find that uh, if your organisation is cash-strapped, which so many are in the sporting sector, that perhaps negotiating additional leave or flexible hours could uh, be beneficial and, and help the arrangement. If a lower remuneration is offered, consider whether you'll accept this perhaps on a short-term or probationary basis. So for example, you might negotiate a rate of pay uh, for a period of time. It might be for the first week or the first month or the first three months or six months. But after that, you're expecting we negotiate a high rate or a review. If you enter into that kind of arrangement, make sure it's in writing. People forget, uh, oh, I don't remember us agreeing on a review. <laughs> um, and it's ideal if, if you have negotiated a review um, to stipulate what that amount will be. So it might be a 5% increase or a 2% increase or a 10% increase, whatever it is, and you're specifying exactly that adjustment and at what time the parties have agreed to that adjustment in that contract. Um, and if needed, check your agreement with an employment lawyer or human resource specialist. So tell your manager, if you're already employed and you think there needs to be a review of your terms uh, of employment, tell your manager that you'd like to meet with them to review the terms of your contract. Prepare some dot points in advance, out outlining your arguments. Use objective data to argue your case, not subjective. For example, what does your employment contract say? say? What does the award, your organisation classification information under that award say about what you should be paid and what level you might be moving to? Um, what are the legislated ABS national wage movements. So for example, the ABS put out figures quarterly about how wages have moved and cost of living expenses have moved. And that's what is used when the July increase is legislated under awards. So there is a, a court case, a case of review of wages. There's a decision made that wages should move by whatever percent. In recent terms, it's been around just under 3% per annum. 
Um, and if you're in a salaried position, for example, so the award doesn't is not as relevant because you're paid above that, it's very reasonable for you to then say, um, can I have a review at least, uh, you know, the national wage movements have moved in the last 12 months by 3% or whatever it is, and I would like to be adjusted as well for that amount. Um, again, you're using data to argue your case, and it's a reasonable request. You can use market rates, including competitor information, if you have it, to argue if you're aware that um, someone else has been paid uh, higher than you are, and you can show that comparison with your role. Um, and within your organisation, there should be, ideally, if you're in a larger organisation, wage parity between people as well at different levels. So if they're doing similar work, they should be paid at the same amount, ideally. And sporting organisations are usually um, aware of those sorts of principles of fairness and equity, but some things get out of whack. And it's quite reasonable for you to say, um, Linda's being paid $50 an hour and I'm being paid $40 an hour. I would like to be moved up because I feel I'm doing the same job. So that takes a bit of confidence and experience to be able to have those conversations. But if you start with a, you know, can we have a discussion, please? Can we, can I set a time uh, with you to have a chat about, about my, the terms of my contract and my wage? I'd appreciate that. So that is the first step. And then go, go into the meeting with your dot point list um, and your argument and then put it in writing after afterwards as well to make sure that the discussion or the intent of the discussion is documented and again when you're negotiating as I said before think of those non-monetary benefits and uh, if a lower remuneration is offered your organization doesn't have the capacity to pay whether you can again um, ask for that to be reviewed at a certain point in time The same applies to the contractor. If you're working on contract, you have a right as a contractor to review your rates. And your contract might actually put in place rates for a particular time. But it's quite normal for a contractor then to review their rates periodically, could be annually, again, in line with national wage movements um, as well. So you would, the argument's different. You would use uh, the contract terms in your contract, again, labour market movements um, and percentage wage movements in the labour market as well. So there are different indicators that you can use. I know a lot of people still use CPI. It doesn't really relate to wages as much. Um, but it's still an indicator that people use uh, in organisations to move wages as CPI figures are released. So if that's an indicator that your client understands, it might be a good one to use. Um, and then again, if not, then maybe you can put in another review date into your contract or your agreement and document that and send them a copy, an email of the, what you've decided as well. So it is... Uh, documented you know if you're walking with sports if you're working with sporting clubs people come and go in those organizations um and same with well many now turnover of staff you might have had a conversation with an employer 
uh, a year ago and they're not there anymore and where's the record of that conversation but if you've put it in an email to the club or to your employer then you've got that conversation in writing that you can refer to so avoid accepting substandard terms that would be our, our recommendation that devalue your professional reputation or the skills of others in your professional uh, in your profession for example um, don't agree to terms that are less than legislated minimums or market norms. Um, cash offered outside a payroll or accounting system is unlawful. We would not recommend it. Um, an unpaid trial or voluntary arrangements or an internship, we wouldn't recommend that either unless it's part of a formal education program or a personal arrangement that clearly benefits you. Your employer or client would respect you more if you adopt a professional approach to negotiation and when you are firm about what you can't and can't do. And once employment terms are locked in place, it's going to be hard to shift them. If you're doing voluntary work for too long, it's going to be hard to ask for money to be paid. If you're working at a rate that's too low, it's going to be much harder to shift that rate uh, if you've started working in that fashion. And be prepared to walk away if your minimum terms can't be met. What's your bottom line? Um, it shouldn't be being paid less than the, the law requires. That, that's an ethical issue that we don't encourage at all. But what is your minimum? And then be prepared to walk away if that minimum can't be met. Okay, luckily employees have good leverage in a type labour market and we're in a type labour market. Government organisations can have um, remuneration classification structures that can be rigid. These are some tips and based on my experience. So it's hard to negotiate with a government organisation. It's literally impossible. Um, sometimes they can pop you up on the next classification level um, sometimes, but usually what the salary that they're offering is, is fairly locked, locked in. Um, a club or client is more likely to tell you they're cash strapped than that, than cashed up. I can't tell you how many times <laughs> um, clients have told us and, and, and employees, people we know that they're cash strapped when the opposite is the case. I'm not to say, I'm not saying that they're not. Some are cash-strapped, um, many are legitimately, but then some are not. So, and they're not, never going to tell you when they've got lots of money because an employer, typically the mindset of its employer is to get as much as possible with the cash reserves. Keep a written record of your conversations, follow-up conversations in writing to make sure discussions and decisions are recorded and consider initiating conversations in writing. If you find this easier than face-to-face -face discussion, some people are not good at face-to-face -face discussion. If you're not good at that, maybe put your request in writing. That might be easier for you to do. And seek the support of influential others. Say if you're in a club um, and you think you need to be paid more or paid for the work that you're doing, um, if you can convince other important influential people in the club of that, you're more likely to get that through than if you're simply going solo um, and trying to argue a case. It's always better to argue a case when you've got collective support for that. 
Never use threats or ultimatums when negotiating. Usually they don't work. Okay, uh, looking at employment contracts. Basically, employment contracts are important, as I mentioned before. I'm not going to go through these slides, but they, they confirm the intentions of the parties, provide a vehicle that allows you to negotiate and cement your conditions in writing and provide a window to an organisation's culture, values and expectations and their level of competence and professionalism. So uh, employment contracts, these are some dot points that an employment contract should include. You could read those in your own time. And contractor agreements, what they should include. They're different. Contractor agreement, as I mentioned before, is different to a normal standard employment arrangement. And if you want more information about these sorts of things that we've been talking about today, the Fair Work Act is a good place to start. Um, usually the Fair Work Ombudsman has a lot of information about that. And also the award, uh, they can be found on the Fair Work Ombudsman uh, website. And of course, your peak body, the SDA. Okay. Are there any questions? Thanks so much, um, Linda. That was terrific and really um, informative. Um, I'll just see if I can turn my, no, hopefully we don't glitch the system. First of all, thank you so much for persevering through that um, and through the, the glitches. People won't be aware, but Linda's had to do some last minute juggling compliments of um, MBN or Telstra contractors this morning. So it's not working from a usual environment. So thank you so much for persevering um, through that and through um, all of the great information that you've provided um, already. Look, I've got some sort of questions and, and points to, to chat on as well. There's no questions come through the Q&A box just yet, but um, I think one of the key points for me that you pointed out earlier was around um, the internships. And that's when we do see a lot of, um, or too, yeah, it can be too much of um, in our industry around um, the importance that there is a framework and there are legalities around um, internships and it absolutely cannot be part of the formal workplace or the, the, the workforce structure. It has to be for the benefit and the development. The focus has to be on the development of um, of the intern as opposed yeah. to providing servicing that otherwise a paid employee um, would be providing. So that's a really, a really key point and it's one that's not always um, always well known. So um, so thank you for, for flagging. Um, it's also the duration too. So if it's a short term, couple of weeks, couple of days kind of duration, it's less likely to be... Uh, questioned but if it goes on and on for a long period full time for more than a couple of weeks this arrangement and someone's not being paid for a period of time then then whether that arrangement is 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 lawful as a volunteer arrangement would need to be questioned yeah yep beautiful um another one that we talked about actually in our webinar the other day um was around, you know, position descriptions are often very 
and can be very loaded with a lot of tasks and a lot of expectations. So one of the key tips I think that we've got around when you're looking at a prospective job is actually breaking down and applying a time to each of those tasks and then dividing the total hours by what is being offered from a pay perspective um, and see how that marries up with the award or with the um, and market rates as well. And, and sometimes it can be quite horrifying to see what the hourly rate actually can calculate yeah. to if you fulfill all of those tasks on a weekly basis. So um, if you're unsure as to whether the money being offered or pay being offered matches what's being expected, that's quite a simple method to, um, to cross-check um, cross that. So, um, yeah, and if you're concerned about that too, if say you're negotiating a new role and the, the job descriptions are mile long, which they often are, and in more senior positions, they get longer and longer. Huge expectations, sometimes crazy expectations um, by, by managers and boards and committees. So if you're concerned about that, that the expectations might be too much, flag it as soon as you can. Say, oh, there's a big wish, a job list here uh, in this role, and I, I love this role, and I'm happy to get stuck into it. Um, but it, there is a big list here that I'd like to at least, once I've been in the role for a little while, I'll get a better feel for how long this is taking. But I would like to have a conversation maybe um, periodically about prioritising the list um, and you know, what, what are the key areas that you need, need me to focus on. And when things are, time is tight, what what can I leave behind? You know, what things do you expect me to leave behind? Because we have seen we have seen a number of disputes um, around this, around employees trying to do their best, trying to get everything done on this long list, and the employer saying, "Oh, but you haven't done that." And they're going, "Well, I didn't think that, that was as high a priority as this one, and I don't have time. I'm already working a lot of hours." So it's always constantly just checking, understanding, negotiating, and prioritizing. Um, that that long list and if you can if you're good at allocating time to things using the data that you've got there to to show your employer or indicate that 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 the list might be a bit long to handle in a 20-hour job or something like that yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely one of the other things too we've talked about previously is around you know organizations particularly in sport can be very cash strapped the ones that genuinely are cash strapped um, you know, another good strategy that we've seen um, happen in that is where, you know, when you're looking at that long list of requirements for the, for the team, for example, um, if the pay and the hours just cannot possibly cover um, all elements that they're requiring, members at work or have their own private practice um, service, you know, you can agree to do the team-based work under that yep. remuneration and under those hours. But if the athletes are requiring, you know, one-on-one -on -one, um, servicing and nutrition support, um, those one-on-one -on -one consults can be filtered through the, the member's um, private practice. So that's a win-win. It's not a cost to the, yeah, it's not a cost to the, the sporting club who doesn't have the funds to do it, um, but the member is still getting paid for their time. So, you know, there can be some, you know, alternative strategies that, that as you've said, you know, finding a win-win situation for um, yeah. for both the, the employer and and the sports dietitian. So yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Carve carve the pie up and say we can do this bit 
I can definitely help you with this. I'd love to. That part we can probably outsource or we can do it in a different way. Yeah, we do that privately through different arrangements and that way they're getting everything they need. But in your integrity and your professional um, integrity and your worth is being recognised, you're not compromising that, which is really important not to do that and get a reputation for the one that comes and does things for $20 an hour or works too hard and doesn't get paid enough. That's not a good, good for you and it's not good for your profession. So it's much better to say, I can do these things for my professional rate and those things here yeah, we can do in a different way through my consulting practice or some, or, or somebody else's, for example. Yeah, mm, yeah. And, and you've really touched on a key point there, I think, too, is around the importance. It's not just the individual, even if you might be prepared to compromise a bit, for the, you know, for the benefit of experience, it does have ramifications for the broader profession, for those that are out there working side by side or those that are still to come through. Um, it can have, you know, it does have an impact on the profession as a whole. So... Um, it is important to bear that in mind um, as well. Yep. So, yeah. And you're educating your client too that if they want a sports dietitian, they're going to have to pay X amount of dollars for a sports dietitian. And then they have to find that somehow. It's important that they do it. They all know how important that is, but they have to find the money. Once they've found the money, it's usually okay. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. it's a hard thing to do to start with when it's not. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Sometimes the professionals come through with sponsored sponsors sponsors as well. So if you've got connections um, with, uh, I saw that in physio. A physio approached a club I was involved with actually with my kids, and the physio said, "Look, we're offering services to the club. It, and we've got a sponsor to cover it." So they made an arrangement with a sponsor who then covered their services for the clock. So if you've got good business acumen <laughs> and you can help with that side of things to cover the work that you're doing through your industry sponsorship of yourself or your practice, then I don't know, there's lots of creative ways of doing these things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right, well, there's no other questions that have come through so we and just mindful of time so we can wrap that up there Linda so huge thank you again um, for your time today and all that valuable um, information and a big thank you to everyone for tuning in today um, so hopefully you've gained some useful um, insights from all the great information that Linda's provided to us today um, and also remember to you can log 10 CDP points for today's session as well so Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks again, Linda.